Hey, it's another episode of Tom SciCast, and I'm Dr. Tom Kennedy. Now today, we're going to talk about something that I find really interesting. Wait, I know. I find everything really interesting. It's like a kid in a candy store, right? Well, for studying ecology, it's the same way with me. What am I going to study? What am I going to talk about? There's so many interesting stories. But today, I'm going to talk about trophic cascades and ripple effects to the ecosystems. You know, a lot of people don't realize it, but the loss or removal, sometimes of a single species, can have this profound effect on an ecosystem. It can affect many different species, and we call those a keystone species. And sometimes the addition of a new species, like an invasive species, can send a ripple effect across an entire ecosystem, change all the interactions between the organisms, and not only that, it can cross into other ecosystems as well. I mean, who would have ever thought that introducing a lake trout into Yellowstone would reduce elk populations? Wait a second. How in the world could the introduction of a fish in a lake reduce elk populations across Yellowstone? Or how does an introduction of a wolf improve water quality in streams? I know. These are really cool things. Sometimes not so cool when you're dealing with invasive species or the loss of a species, but the point here is that community interactions are complex, and sometimes we don't know how they're gonna play out. So let's get started. Let's talk about a keystone species, and there are several that I like to talk about, and one of them are the sea otters. I know, sea otters. Hey, did you know, according to South Park, in 500 years, the sea otters become sentient and they form the Atheist Allied Alliance and they go to war against the United Atheist League to settle the grand question. What should they call themselves? Well, I know. It's a great South Park parody of Buck Rogers. It was awesome. But getting back to reality here, sea otters, the eat sea urchins, are a keystone species that are incredibly important for the survival of over 600 species. Wait, how does that happen? Well, let's go back. Sea otters, what do they eat? Well, they like to eat sea urchins and they crack them on their tummies, right? They got perfectly good tummies to crack their food open on. But sea urchins are grazers, mostly of algae. Well, guess what kelp is? Kelp is a type of algae that in some places can grow 100 feet tall. And along the Pacific coast, they form these large kelp forests. And because you have a forest of kelp, you have a lot of structure. Well, habitat complexity is incredibly important for creating habitats for lots of different animals to live and plants and other organisms as well. Now, of course, you also need nutrients and energy, but kelp can be eaten, right? So you've got all this nutrients and energy and habitat complexity. You have a complex ecosystem with about 600 different species in it. So here's where the sea otters come into play. Because the sea otters eat sea urchins, they keep sea urchin numbers in check. So they reduce the populations of sea urchins, which means sea urchin populations don't go crazy and eat all the algae. So here's the problem. Here's how we know that a sea otter is a keystone species. 
If you remove sea otters from the kelp forest, you lose the kelp forest. And the reason why is because the sea urchins don't have many other predators. So with the removal of sea otters, sea urchin numbers explode and they graze all the algae and they will literally cut the kelp right off the rock, causing it to float off and leave. So you can lose your entire kelp forest due to an overgrowth of sea urchins because you don't have sea otters eating them. And then once you lose the kelp forest, guess what? You lose all the other organisms, all the other types of rockfish that will live in that area, they leave too. So that's why we call them a keystone species. And the loss of these keystone species, in this case a sea otter, can result in the loss of a kelp forest and the loss of over 600 species in that area. Another type of keystone species are beavers. Beavers make dams. So you take a small mountain stream and a beaver creates a dam. And what that does is it creates a wetland. And by creating a shallow, small wetland, now all of a sudden you've got plants that grow in those wetland areas. You have an entire group of aquatic insects or insects at least that have an aquatic larvae that like these slow moving or no moving waters. And then you also have streams which have the fast moving water. So once again, you create habitat heterogeneity. We have fast moving streams and dry upland areas. We have still waters and those have different types of organisms living in there. So you remove beavers from the landscape and you eventually lose the beaver dams you lose the wetlands behind those dams and you lose all the species that rely on those wetlands. So that is another example of a keystone species. And in fact, some people call them ecosystem engineers because they're engineering structures that alter the landscape. Now, let's talk about some ripple effects. This is kind of interesting. In lakes, food webs, are sometimes kind of linear. Now, they're always complicated. I mean, every, every ecosystem has more levels of complexity than you probably ever thought about. But sometimes in aquatic habitats, the feeding interactions can be kind of straightforward. You can have what is called a top-down effect, is that you've got top predators which eat their prey, which in turn eat their prey, which in turn eat algae. That's a top-down effect, so that's what's affecting the ecosystem. You've got a lake. It could be like Lake Yellowstone or even my turtle pond, and it's green. It's green from all the phytoplankton in it, you know, all the single-celled photosynthetic organisms. They're green because they're doing photosynthesis, and of course they have chlorophyll. So if I'm gonna clear this lake up, I've got to reduce the amount of phytoplankton in my lake or in my turtle pond. The way you would lower the amount of phytoplankton is you would increase the amount of zooplankton because zooplankton eats phytoplankton. And the way you would increase the amount of zooplankton, like little crustaceans, you know, gamorous and other amphipods and things like that, you have to release them from their predators. So you would have to lower the number of small fish. And the way you could do that is to increase a larger predator that eats the smaller fish 
that in turn reduces the amount of smaller fish in the pond, which allows for more zooplankton. More zooplankton then will eat more of the phytoplankton, and voila, you have a clear lake, or in my case, I could have a clear turtle pond. Now there's other ways, of course, to clear up a pond or a lake. One is to reduce your nutrients, and that way you won't get the phytoplankton blooms in there. Now let's go to Yellowstone Lake, where this has actually happened. Well, we've actually seen this happen in multiple lakes, and people have intentionally introduced fish to clear up lakes. Now in Yellowstone, they have a very large lake called Yellowstone Lake. Up until about 1985, the only large predator in there was the cutthroat trout. And these cutthroat trout ate a lot of animals called gammaras. These are tiny little crustaceans. And gammaras, guess what they ate? Phytoplankton. So this lake always had kind of a greenish tint in the summertime. And the reason why is because all the cutthroat trout would eat the gammaras. And because there were no gammaras to eat the phytoplankton, the phytoplankton grew in numbers and the lake turned green. Now sometime in the late 80s, somebody thought it would be a good idea to introduce lake trout into Yellowstone Lake. I don't think it's usually a good idea to introduce species into a novel environment, and this probably was not a good idea, but fishermen just love catching big fish, and these lake trout are much bigger than the cutthroat trout. So here's what happened. Well, the lake trout is a much larger fish. Guess what? It's a predator of especially small cutthroat trout. So they reduced the populations of cutthroat trout. Guess what happened to gammaras, the small crustacean that eats phytoplankton, right? Without their predators, the gammaras increased in populations. So if I increase the primary consumer in population, what happens to your producers? What happens to the phytoplankton? It goes down. And guess what happens to the lake clarity? It improves. It goes up. So, you know, people are going, oh, yeah, we got a nice clear lake now. We have this nice bigger fish we can catch now. Okay, so we've changed the trophic dynamics and the clarity and all these other functionings of this lake now. So now let's go back to how something like the introduction of a lake trout can have a ripple effect across the entire Yellowstone ecosystem. I know, isn't that weird? It's pretty easy to understand the trophic cascade of how it caused Yellowstone Lake to clear up. That makes sense, right? We can do this nice top-down effect, introducing a top predator, less phytoplankton, the lake clears up. We got that. But how in the world could introducing a lake trout reduce elk populations? Well, this is where ecology gets fun. Now, sometimes, you know, the what we find in ecology isn't always great. But to me, understanding how ecosystems are connected across a landscape, how what happens inside of a lake can affect what happens in the terrestrial ecosystem is very interesting. And the story I'm going to tell makes a very important point. And we're going to hang on to this point as we go into it. Ecosystems are connected. What happens in a stream affects terrestrial ecosystems. What happens in a terrestrial ecosystems 
affect streams and lakes. These ecosystems are not isolated. They are connected. So let's talk about this. Introducing the lake trout, how that reduced elk populations. It's a cool story. And like I said, we're gonna talk about this ripple effect and we're gonna talk about bears, elk, and cutthroat trout, bald eagles, and ospreys. I know, all of these things, right? So this Yellowstone Lake has streams. Now, for those of you that don't know a lot about trout, trout are related to salmon. And you might have heard that salmon live out in the ocean and they travel upstream in rivers to spawn and then they die and then this you know the eggs hatch and the little babies they swim downstream and they go out to the ocean and that's where they mature and then when they're adults they swim back up to the same stream they spawned in. Well trout are also salmonids. So guess what? A lot of trout are migratory. Now instead of migrating from an ocean like the Atlantic or the Pacific into a stream, these cutthroat trout are 100% fresh water. However, their ocean, so to speak, you know, got that in quotes, is Yellowstone Lake. And they would swim upstream into the streams to spawn, okay? Now this is interesting. So if I've got a lake and I've got all these cutthroat trout that are growing and living in the lake, they're eating the gammers that eats the phytoplankton, right? So that's nutrient energy inputs from a lake. Those fish swim upstream. They're taking nutrients and energy with them, right? Because, well, we know we can eat fish. They have lots of nutrients and energy and fats. So they're very, very nutritious. So as they would swim upstream, bears would line up on the streams and eat the cutthroat trout. Just like you've seen bears right, in freshwater streams eating salmon, well, they also did this at Yellowstone. They would eat cutthroat trout. Now, the introduction of the lake trout, this larger fish, they spawn in deeper waters in the lake. They do not migrate up the streams. But because they reduced the populations of cutthroat trout, that means there were fewer cutthroat trout traveling up the streams. That, what that means is bears no longer had that food source, right? Bears no longer had that food source. Well, bears aren't dependent on a single source of food. They'll change their eating habits. They're pretty smart. Sometimes, I think bears are a little too smart for their own good, right? I mean, they get into just about everything. So bears can alter their behaviors. They can alter what they're eating. They don't have to have cutthroat trout to eat. It's a good source of food, but unfortunately, with a loss of cutthroat trout going up those streams, the bears, well, they started eating something else. So what did, so what did they do? Hmm. They looked around and they started taking elk calves, right? So instead of eating the cutthroat trout, they started eating elk calves, and that in turn reduced the population of elk in Yellowstone. Now, here's some other things that are interesting. Ospreys. Osprey is a type of bird, it's a, it's a type of raptor that eats fish. And in fact, they almost eat exclusively fish. 
Now, I've heard and seen books say they only eat fish. I said that one time I was giving a riverboat tour in North Florida, and I said ospreys are obligate fish eaters, which means they only eat fish. And then I look up, and this osprey is carrying a squirrel. So, go figure, right? But other than that, I imagine that 99.9% .9 of an osprey's diet is fish. Now, osprey will circle around, and they've got incredibly good vision. And they can actually see into the water, and they'll swoop down and grab fish near the surface of the water. They often fed on cutthroat trout. Now, with the loss of cutthroat trout to these lake trout, lake trout are larger, you know, the babies aren't smaller, so they could possibly eat the babies, but they live a little bit deeper in the water. That's a problem for ospreys. They no longer had a good source of food. So osprey populations around Lake Yellowstone began to plummet 30, then 20, then 10, then only two nests and no fledglings. So there it is, the introduction of a lake trout also affected ospreys that eat fish simply because the lake trout occurred deeper in the waters and the osprey basically couldn't catch them anymore. Now Yellowstone has seen other changes in its long history. About a hundred years ago, wolves were extirpated from Yellowstone. Now notice I used the word extirpated, not extinct. Wolves aren't extinct, they're still around. But if you have something that's extirpated, that means that particular population is gone. So wolves are extirpated. They're basically hunted out of Yellowstone about 100 years ago. Now, that was a problem. So here's what happened. Elk populations began to grow. Now remember, you know, bears, they're eating cutthroat trout. They'll still take an elk calf, but they're not going to depend on it that much. Now, elk not having many natural predators, except for bears, inside of Yellowstone, their numbers began to grow. And not only did their populations begin to expand, but guess what? Their behavior changed. They kind of walked around like nothing was going to happen to them. So, you know, you're a large herbivore, no real predators. Your populations expand, but you can alter your behavior. You can hang out where all the food and water is. Well, guess what? Streams and meadows are fantastic places for elk. However, elk aren't necessarily all that great for streams and meadows. So the elk would graze the grass down. They would graze a lot of the growing plants down so there wasn't a lot of vegetation around the streams. The elk basically hung out in the streams because, well, nothing was going to chase them off or ask them to move. So the water quality in the streams became degraded. It was more turbid. Well, that meant there were less aquatic insects. Now, a lot of insects like stoneflies and mayflies and caddisflies, their larvae are inside of streams, right? They grow up in these streams. But if you make the water turbid, then you get a lot of silt on your rocks that shuts down algae production. And these insect larvae that require basically crystal clear waters, they don't grow that well. 
So their populations are reduced. So now you've got these streams and meadows with lower populations of insects and less vegetation. Guess what? That also reduced the numbers of many types of birds that would hang out around those areas. So the powers that be at Yellowstone, they decided that they were going to reintroduce wolves back into Yellowstone. I mean, after all, Yellowstone was a natural area. They'd just been extirpated by people. And this, of course, had multiple effects on the Yellowstone ecosystem. Well, first thing, wolves hunt elk, especially calves. So by hunting elk, you now had a natural predator that kind of kept elk populations in check. But not only that, the elk couldn't just hang out in the meadows anymore, right? I mean, they had to move off. They had to avoid being eaten. So because the elk spent less time in these meadows and streams, guess what happened? You got more vegetation. You got the willows growing back along the streams. The stream quality improved. You had the return of these aquatic insects that weren't doing so well. And you had an increase in songbirds. I know, isn't that amazing? By reintroducing wolves back into Yellowstone, songbird populations increased and the water quality of many of the streams also improved. Once again, this is a ripple effect across an ecosystem. How one species can have a huge effect on an ecosystem. Now that being said, not every species is going to have the same effect across an ecosystem. The addition and removal of some species may go largely unnoticed, whereas the addition or removal of others, well, they could have a huge effect. And we can somewhat predict that if we start studying these ecosystems and studying the, the feeding interactions and the behavior of organisms to get an idea of how much they're going to change. But whenever you introduce or remove keystone species and large predators, usually that's gonna have a pretty large effect. So there you have it. Now you know how the introduction of a lake trout can reduce elk populations, or how the introduction of wolves can improve water quality and increase bird populations. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's ecology. And to me, that stuff is incredibly exciting to study. Okay, well until next time, this has been Tom Sidecast.